Hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. Well, this episode, I've decided to come outside. We're all, of course, on lockdown, but that doesn't mean I have to be completely inside the house. And, uh, well, the filming inside the barn was interesting. I used a new camera and uh, I gotta say, the results made it look like I'd filmed it with a potato. So we're back to using the cell phone, which I've been doing for years now. Uh, we even got a mic this time, and that means uh, I can sit, I can tell you the rest of the story of going through the Southern Asian down to Cape Horn and hopefully uh, finish that part of the story off and uh, share with you something that was a pretty exciting, exciting part of that race. Um, well, without any further ado, grab your coffee, sit down, let's go and watch with the Mariner. Okay, well in episode six, I started talking about leaving New Zealand and heading down into the Southern Ocean. Um, I got right up to the bit where I had a massive tear in my mainsail and uh, the utter kind of end of the world feeling I had when, when that occurred. So if you wanna hear about that, that's episode six uh, on YouTube or on the podcast, on Apple, Spotify, Google, all those things. And then in episode seven, I talked about how I managed to kind of climb my way emotionally and physically back out of that and actually set to and did this 36 hour repair, 36 feet of stitching on this enormous mainsail and managed to create myself a patch which would be good enough to take me another 1500 miles south and east down to Cape Horn. So um, the first two parts of this story, episode six and episode seven. Uh, a few people wrote to me and said, are you going to finish the story? Because I'm pretty known for uh, <laughs> going off on tangents. Here's the end of the story. So I thought today I'd come down to the dock and talk about this. It's pretty nippy. I think it's getting me in the mood for it. Um, we've got a little westerly consort over here. Uh, haven't done anything with that for a long time. Maybe we should be uh, talking about if that's something that people are interested to see. But um, let's get going with the story of uh, what happened in the Southern Ocean. So once I got the sail repair done, the first thing I had to do really was sleep. I'd already been awake 24 hours when I had the issue. And now with that 36 hour monster session of stitching, I was, my energy was seriously depleted and I needed to get some sleep in as much as I could. Now, um, I wanted to be as performance-based as I could at, in this part of the race and with this terrible thing happening to me, I needed to do that more than ever. I had had that talk with David Adams in New Zealand and he had said to me, you're a great seaman, but you're no kind of racer. And I was no kind of racer because I was too conservative. So I knew that what I needed to do was pick it up and go faster. But the reality was that I had I had to sleep. So the good thing about this kind of boat is that if you're flying, um, there's not really that much for you to do. If you've got a steady wind angle, if the boat is on course, remember we've got alarms which tell us if we're going off course, if the wind's going over speed or under speed, if the boat's going over speed or under speed. And so I'm just basically following an apparent wind angle. The boat's doing whatever it can to stay with the apparent wind. Um, 
and I got very happy driving the boat like that. The uh, main issue I'd had up to that point was that I didn't know the boat very well. I wasn't very uh, skilled uh, in pushing the boat fast. Um, I had relied too much on my previous style of sailing, which had been expeditionary sailing, outbound sailing, sail training, and then with the clipper boats taking amateur crews, um, you know, quite far south, but not this far south. But I'd always had this kind of element of, of being too conservative, and I needed to blow that out of the water. But first was sleep, and that meant that I just got, I don't know how long I slept for, it was definitely my biggest sleep of the Southern Ocean, but thank God the boat just basically kept plowing. I kept waking up, having a look around, yeah, sure, and go back to sleep. So I'm not like zonked out, gone. We are thousands of miles from any shipping lanes in anybody. We're just near Point Nemo, which is the, you know, the the, the pole of remoteness from from anything basically on the planet. But um, you still you're waking up, but maybe more half an hour. Have a quick look around uh, at the equipment, looking out the windows, all good. Go back to sleep. So I need to be awake for about 15, 20 seconds, and go back to sleep again. So from my point of view, that seemed like a, oh, a little holiday. So I. Um, yeah, slept. But as soon as I had stopped sleeping, it was time to get something uh, bigger sail on. And that's when I started this new thing of like, okay, we're going to go faster. So I had had the Solon and the Trinketa, which is like your inner jib and your outer jib or your Yankee and your staysail up. Um, I now need to put something else up. So I put this beautiful uh, furled flying sail, this Code 5 up and decided to pump a bit harder. So anybody who knows these boats will know that, uh, you know, I was a broad, at a broad reaching angle. I probably could have gone to A3, but I still wasn't at that point in my skill set and the waves was pretty big down there. So I didn't want to be in a situation where I had a big pulling sail with a big high um, shoulder on it, which it's got a lot of lift when you're sailing along with the hull pretty horizontal. But if you do start to go down a wave, the boat is angled down and that thing is still pulling and pulling kind of upwards. It ends up creating a force which is pushing the boat down into the wave. So for those who haven't kind of got their heads around this kind of boat, the power to weight ratio is such that the sails are so big and the hull is so light that you can get into a situation where the wind is like a very, very flat day like today. We would have just the true wind coming in. But all we know is that if we had a speedboat and we were driving around here with a speedboat, the, the wind that was coming over the water is terribly small compared to the wind that's being created over the bow of the boat, the so-called like boat wind. So when you've got a boat that can do 15 knots in 15 knots, you have two pretty big vectors which are happening. You've got this apparent wind angle which, which is being created by wind coming directly over the front of the boat that you're making by the hull speed through the water and you've got the true wind and that apparent wind angle is the daughter of these two massive vectors which are pretty pretty equally weighted. So the apparent wind angle is vastly different to the true wind angle. So yeah, true wind angle, I was on a broad reach, but apparent wind angle, I was on a fine reach. The wind was just forward of the beam. So the code five was appropriate, but um, only because of the speed I was doing and only because of the, um, uh, the, the last elements of conservatism that I still had that I didn't want to be in a situation where I was like pitch in the boat after deciding I'm going to go for it and then disaster directly after. But I was pretty set on the idea that within the bounds of reason, within the bounds of, um, let's say, 
racing seamanship, I think, within the bounds of I'm not going to break the rig, I'm not going to break the hull, break the rudders, break the, you know, the keel or something, but within the bounds of that, I'm going to go as fast as I can. I'm certainly going to step up and step beyond whatever I've done before. So I uh, started to go faster, much faster. And I started rather than cruising around and actually I found a piece of video on my computer just the other day and it was of me like in the Southern Ocean somewhere, I think it was going Christmas time. And I've literally, I'm talking to the camera like, yeah, I've just got the mainsail up and I'm doing 10, 11 knots. I'm like, oh my goodness, what were you thinking? But that's what I needed at that time. They were the training wheels, so that's what I did. But the training wheels were off at this point, and suddenly I'm sitting on 20, 22, uh, you know, a lot of the time. And um, sleeping in fits and bursts, but the the action of the boat when you're in those kind of conditions is completely different. You are just like down the wave, like it just sounds like you're being dragged in a wheelie bin over like cobbled streets or something behind a car. Like it's just, and the the, the whole the whole panels, the carbon fiber panels of the boat are so tense that they're very, very sonorous. So the front of the bow is basically empty because all the sails are on deck, like at the back windward corner, helping to lever the boat down. All the ballast is in, the canting keel is fully over, a little drop of daggerboard in just to kind of keep it lined up and then everything else is flying. And that means that you've got this situation that the bow is popped, the front like half of the boat basically is out of the uh, water most of the time. But when it does make contact, that forward end of the boat, like the front 30 feet of the boat are empty. And so any kind of impact, any kind of boom, boom, boom on the side of the boat, it's, it's massively loud. So um, you have to get used to that. It's very, very hard on the uh, senses and on the nerves to begin with. But you know, over time you get used to it, you start to trust a machine, trust the boat. So I, started to go faster and I wrote a number of blogs at that time which were well received about the fact that I'm going to go I'm going to go as far as I could and later on in the race looking back I know now that I didn't you know I started to catch these guys up that's the story of what's happening here I caught these guys up and uh, they were 500 miles ahead of me um, but I didn't catch them up because they were like in no wind I know from later on in the race that there was a couple of angles that I could sail that boat I had exactly the right sails for it. I felt very confident on that angle. Um, and with higher wind speeds, I've always been happier in higher wind speeds. And I could be anybody if I could get that angle. And basically from that point at Point Nemo to Cape Horn was exactly that angle. Like I was just charging and every six hours, the person that was close to me was Derek Hatfield and he was 520 miles ahead of me at the, um, after that sail repair. But literally every six hour scheduled report, every sked, every six hours, 10 miles out of them, 12 miles out of them, 15 miles out of them, eight miles out of them. So I was all the time, and obviously I'm starting to see the fruits of my labor and I can see that this is working. So I just kept going for it and going for it and going for it. And we started to get down towards the horn. And I knew from probably four or five days away from the horn that I had to commit to the horn. I've talked about this before. Basically, the, the ocean is so wide um, and the Drake's channel is so narrow and there's nothing to impede the wind at all, basically, on the bottom of the world, apart from the Andes and that ridge of uh, the Visson Massif and all that ridge of uh, mountains that go up the Antarctic Peninsula. There's nothing to stop the wind until it gets to there. Plus, it's 2,000 meters deep until you get to uh, the, the shelf at Cape Horn and then it goes to just 50 meters deep and all that big cyclic energy in the water is just going to stack up onto the shelf as though it's like a ocean swell coming onto the beach. So the one thing you don't want is you don't want to have new breeze and new swell hitting you when you come onto Cape Horn. That is the worst. So 
I was looking at the weather systems and I was doing okay. Everything was looking pretty, pretty good. But from a thousand miles out, about four days out, no, but I guess three, three days out, I was, um, I had to commit because the only way of getting out of those weather systems that are rolling in there clockwise in the southern hemisphere, low pressure running clockwise, the top of them is going from west to east. And if you're in it, you're in it and you can't get out of it. But if you can see it coming, which of course you can with uh, modern weather routing, then you can start to go north and then this thing will just come in underneath you and you can pick what kind of density of, um, of, 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 uh, of, of pressure you want to be in. Um, where you want to see those those contours in the pressure lines, um, where you want to be, what's the correct uh, grouping for you so you know your wind speed, and uh, you can modulate how strong the weather is. But by this point, when you're getting towards Cape Horn, if you go north, you're going to be going onto a, a coastline and it's going to be a lee shore. So it's an absolute disaster for you if, if you do that. So I committed, I committed to the horn and I could see it on my chart plotter, obviously, and I could see it in my mind's eye. It's just like, I gotta go for it. And every scared, I kept pulling these guys in. And the boat was going really well. That was one of the great things now. I'd replaced the batteries in New Zealand, which would give me so much hassle in the Southern Ocean, not being able to run the engine, all that stuff. And, oh man, so that stress was off me. All of the, um, all of the Raymarine uh, autopilot system had completely overhauled and new parts put in where they need to be put in. I think we, I think we put a, ram in i think there was one ram which had already gone round the world this electrolinear ram from raymarine absolutely brilliant it had already gone round the world with sir robin and then it had come halfway around the world with me and it like it just needed like to have a lie down in a dark room <laughs> it was a bit ill so that was off and i think there was one of the like header units or something but other than that everything was running fine but the boat felt good and i felt like i knew what i was doing suddenly you know it was before I didn't even know how to reef properly and suddenly I was at a situation where I knew how to reef, I knew how to run the boat, um, I knew how to, I say I didn't know how to reef, what I mean is that I didn't know the point in which I could hold on to the reefs you know and the boat still be okay. I'd realized that the point where you reef is when the boat comes off a wave, it sticks its nose into the next one, everything goes dark inside as all the windows go like a couple of feet underwater and then the boat struggles its way back out the wave and it's off again. That's when you go on deck and you reef the mainsail. That's when that big push at the top of the mast, the you know 30 meter mast from that big square top main is just getting too big. It's plowing the, the nose of the boat into the water and it's time to go and relieve that by putting a reef in. But So I was feeling settled and I could see the results of what was going on and I was doing my um uh, my blogs and things and you know everything was kind of rolling but i could see the horn coming and what i could also see was the fact that there was a big weather system coming in across the pacific and i could see that it and i were going to arrive at the horn at basically the same time and i think the analogy that i said uh in my blogs at the time was that it was like um like two hands were going to come together one was cape horn and one was this weather system and I was going to be in the middle of it. So I can, but I had to go like, what are you going to do? Like, I'm going to just like heave two. you can heave two open sixties and Volvo sixties. I've done it many times. It's possible. And actually race boats do it quite nicely. It's got a very thin keel with a lot of weight at the bottom. So you can cant it, put the boat at a particular angle to kind of put the hull up to the, the waves, put your ballast in and you can get them very much balanced up. And people that have done trips across the Atlantic with me won't see me do that many times. And we just go inside the boat and relax. So you can heave two, but, this is not the time for that. Uh, this is more like Bernard Mortissier in the 1969 Golden Globe. This is like speed is your friend, you've got to go. And the one good thing that happened is that the boat that I had was a Fino boat. It was built by, uh, it was designed by Fino Kong, okay, by Pascal Kong. And um, 
I had known uh, before that I was going too slow because there's a eccentricity with those boats where if you're going too slow, the waves come up behind you and they like pat you on the bum. It's called the Thino bump. And there's bonk on the back of the boat and uh, bonk had become a very normal part of my life. It meant that the waves are going faster than you are and you need to speed up. Well, there was no more of that. Like I was way ahead of them. So flying, flying, flying. Uh, doing pretty good, but getting very, very nervous about this uh, system. And um, as I started to get just 24 hours out, you know, I started to get into the front edge of this. I would been coming down a little bit southeast, like heading for the horn. This thing had been coming in directly from the west, and uh, we started to converge. And the only tactic I had to deal with it was to go as fast as was humanly possible. This thing's coming in at 18 or 20 knots. I'm doing 18 or 20 knots. I've just managed to scrabble onto the front side of it and uh, I just had to stay there and stay there and what I was relying on was the fact that as it came in the weather systems you often you know like this maybe well it's a bad example but if you've got a weather system coming in you can see it up high long before it gets to you they're kind of coming in with an angled front and I was thinking if this comes in and those mountains are four and a half thousand meters high which they are down there at the end of South America it may come in and as it comes in there'll be it'll hit the mountain ridge and there'll be a little like passageway in inside here somewhere where I can just sneak through. Otherwise, I'm going to be in a very, very bad situation. And my, my tactic would have been um, storm jib number four, uh, uh, reef in the main, um, cant the boat, uh, put the dagger boards down, put all the ballast in the boat, and then just ride it out. But I did not want to be on the plateau at Cape Horn. And I could see these guys, they were getting close, right? They were like 120 miles off or something. I'd managed to pull them in and not just from them going slow, now, I will, in fairness, in fairness, they had had one slow bit and they had had a slow bit going round Cape Horn. Basically, ahead of this weather system that was coming in, there was a high pressure ridge and there were some very cool pictures of uh, Derek and Brad and Gutek ahead of me going round the horn, literally with like straw hats on and, and cigars. And, and I did feel very positive and particularly for, for Derek, for Derek Hatfield. He'd done the 2008 Vendée Globe and had had um, almost dismast in the Southern Ocean and had managed to get himself into New Zealand and it but it'd been the end of his round the world campaign that time he'd come back got this boat and now I knew as he went around the horn I could imagine how positive he was feeling to take that that turn up to the left and get out of the southern ocean so but I was looking for my own um, vindication for what I've been doing um, so I just had to keep on pumping and pumping and pumping I got into about about 60 or 70 miles. It was it was going dark, just like it is now. I've got to be quick here. But um, it was starting to go darker and uh, I'm on deck and I'm kind of chilly and I'm looking around. I've been in a dry suit for 20 days and it all looks okay, but these waves are getting very big and the wind has been up to like 30, 35 knots. And I'm starting to get down to a point where it is getting, you know, we're getting towards Cape Horn. It's starting to get shallower. The wind speed's starting to increase. That shallow patch is like calling me in uh, at the edge of Cape Horn. And um, I went below and I was in about an hour and I was on the, the bunk there at the at the nav station, which goes, uh, it goes athwart ships. And it had a little lee cloth that ran up the side of the bunk and onto the underside of the nav station, which is a kind of V-shaped nav station. And suddenly the boat came hurtling down this wave. And obviously what happened is the the, the back of the following wave was way too steep she stuck her nose in but this time she didn't pull her nose out I had one reef in the main and the Solon and the trinket 
I was flying. She stuck her nose in and she just kept going in. And we call that going down the mine and we were going down the mine and the boat started to rear up. <clears throat> Everything in the side of the boat starts falling. I like go up onto the lee cloth. So now this is a sailor's story. So I should be telling you, oh, the mast tip, it, it touched the water. And I would say that it probably went up to like 40 or 50 degrees. And that's probably, <laughs> that's probably going a little bit too. If you see a picture of, what was that boat called? Silk, is it? If you're on the podcast, you go and go look for a, a boat called Silk. There's a famous picture of it taken by Beacon of Cows, and it's um, it's them going into a pitch pole in the uh, in the Solent. But uh, on YouTube, I'll put a little image of it here. I'm sure I can get away with that. But it's this beautiful pink spinnaker boat, and it's just going underwater. And that was the first thing that was in my mind. And um, down she went, and all my shit's just falling down, like almost vertical down the boat. I'm thinking, oh my god, here we go. But thank God it sits back down on its ass. You see the autopilot, roop, roop, roop. it sort of gets itself lined up as to it and off it goes again. Like, Jesus Christ, did that happen? So it was time to put a reef in. So um, I went on deck and I had about a hundred miles to go to the uh, horn, which, you know, in this kind of speed, you're only talking like six hours or something, seven hours. So I went on deck and I struggled and struggled and struggled and I got this reef in. I got a lot smarter then about how to quickly pull the tack of the sail down and putting the boom out and rotating the wing mast. And I managed to do it with, as I came off the top of a wave, and I got maximum speed and minimum apparent wind, I managed to get the front of the sail down, get it lashed off, and then deal with the back of it. And luckily, my little Cuban fiber patch that I put in there, um, you know, we've talked about this in the previous thing. I know about the trick of doing the 5200s. It doesn't work very well on, um, on, a, on a proper sailcloth, but I had uh, got this thing stitched in. I was very happy with it, and it, it never gave me, in fact, to spool forward a little bit, that patch actually went all the way back to France with no, nothing else done to it. So it was a good repair. But um, yeah, I, uh, I managed to get the reef in, get hunkered down. So now I got two reefs in, the Solent's still pulling and we're still trucking like 20 knots. And as we started to get down to the horn, I started to feel like, man, if this, I may have actually pushed this too far. Like this may be really super serious. I started to get a plan together of like, how am I gonna get all the sail off thing as fast as I can and just ride out. There was about 45, 50 knots um, uh, uh, forecast in the storm, but you know, that could be 50%, well, give me 40% extra in gusts, right? So if you've got 50 knots, you could be getting gusts of 75. And I really don't wanna be in 75 knot gusts. But what I was doing, and I could see that, I was on the front of it, I was on the front of it. I could see it on the radar. I could see it on the, um, the, uh, the routing, which I got, you know, downloading my grips. I could see it was, I was right, I was in the right place and I could see this narrow little slot that if I could just get in there, but it was, it was a Damocles blade because yeah, if I can get in there, it's great. And if I'm in there, it's onto a 50 meter shallow uh, uh, plateau and this storm is coming in and like, oh my God. So I'm getting on the phone to just call to somebody and like ask like, what should I do now? Is this okay? I just need that little like extra bit of, you know, positivity and the person on the other end like, just keep going, just keep going. It's like, okay, that's what I'm gonna do. <laughs> so. It was literally at the end of that phone call, I'm watching the watching all the instruments, of course, I'm staying inside because now I'm very scared about pitch polling. And uh, as I watch it, it just goes 45, 45, 50, 50, 50, 30, 30, 25, 20, 15. And the boat speed starts to come down. I was like, oh my God, like literally it just, it had worked. I was 
through the front of the squall, or the squall, the storm. The storm had come up against the mountains on the south of uh, South America, and it granted me this moment of reprieve that I had hoped for, that I planned for, that I just put everything into. And as I uh, came up onto deck, the boat was just cruising along. It wasn't very much more than this. It had gone dark. It was just about uh, 10 o'clock, something like that. And um, it had, it, the wind had literally just, the only time I've ever seen it like that was uh, in Cape Town. There's, in Cape Town, there's an incredible wind line because of Table Mountain. I've got caught out there at a start line for a big yacht race once, coming out like massive sails set up and then going into the start line and going from like 10 knots to 25 knots, like from here to the end of that boat. And this was exactly the same. I just came out the front of it. And as I came out the front of it, I came on deck and like, thank God, thank God. It, it had worked and I was at Cape Horn and this thing had granted me this very, what was soon to be proven to be a very short period of time, less than six hours to make the turn. And what I saw about an hour later out through the absolute pitch black was the lighthouse at Cabo de Horners, just blink, blink, blink in the nighttime. And I could see it and I knew, oh, thank God, I just press 10 degrees to port on the autopilot and it starts to come up. And for anybody who's been around there or if you're imagining what that might be like, the Southern Ocean is something else. The Atlantic is bad, the Pacific is bad, the Indian's bad, they're like, they're all bad, but their big bad brother is the Southern Ocean. And that feeling of taking that left turn and starting to climb up and out of uh, the Southern Ocean is the best feeling you can possibly get. There was many more trials and tribulations to come, but it's like, oh God, even if something goes wrong now, I can just go into a Schwire. It's like hundred miles from here and it'll be fine, you know? But uh, I, 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 as I always do, I go and pat the boat, that'll do pig. Like, thank you so much. Like, here we are, we've got around this worst part of it. I'd broken the back of sailing around the world and in it I had come up out of the flames with the, uh, not like a phoenix, but I staggered out from my exploded barbecue of the Southern Ocean and not know how to sail the boat. And suddenly I knew what was going on. I knew that uh, I had the ability to go fast. And I got the next scared, which was just after midnight, just after seeing the light at Cabo de Hornes. Third place ahead of me was only 80 miles away. I had pulled back 440 miles from that disaster 10 days before in the Southern Ocean. And suddenly I was back in the race and I knew how to make the boat go fast. Okay, Whew. well, a little bit of a story there. We've got a couple minutes left. I'm actually starting to time these things so that, so that I don't just yatter on for ages. So uh, going to the last five minutes here, um, I was asked some questions. I've got a little section which we're calling questions and tangents. And it's be called that because that's pretty much how I ask a, answer a question. And ask a question is lots of tangents. So I'll try and keep on track and it's not gonna be very long, but the questions I would give it, was given was, uh, what's the difference between an iMocha 60 and an Open 60? I think I can help with that. And um, how do you go about food on this kind of thing? So thank you very much for those questions. And if you've got any other questions, send them to csmthemariner at gmail.com and I'll pick those up and I'll try and include them uh, as soon as I can. It's really fun getting those questions. So uh, the difference between Open 60 and iMocha 60, nothing. So that was very easy. Uh, IMOCA stands for, it's an acronym and it stands for International, International Monohull Open Class 
Association. So it's a French-based uh, group that uh, oversees these boats. So they're called IMOCA boats. If you've got your certificate as an IMOCA 60, the boat that I took around the world was built as an IMOCA 60. It had been certified as a IMOCA 60, but in this race, it was racing as something we called an Eco 60, which was boats that were older than 2006, I think it was. So. Um, open class boats, that's what we've talked about a little bit before, maximum length, maximum draft, maximum height on the uh, mast, uh, a few other, I think the beam is in there and a few other things, but it's a box rule. And then inside of that, you're open to do whatever you want, but it has to be no bigger than 60 foot on the waterline. So open 60 and I mock a 60, the same thing. The food, Whew, okay, we've got a couple minutes to get into this. I think we'll come back to this another time and get into this more detail, but to answer the question, the food thing for me was something that um, I augmented the uh, accepted method of doing it. Let's put it that way. So you're meant to take freeze-dried food and you're meant to be very gritty and stubborn and stoic about it and you're gonna just eat sawdust all the way around the world. And I very quickly realized that was not for me. So. Um, I had a company called Fusion out of the UK put my food together. I don't think that company exists anymore, which is a crying shame because their stuff was amazing. Um, but uh, they had done me proud and put a load of great stuff in there. Um, I had uh, Thai green curry. I had uh, chili con carne. I had um, some Mexican dishes uh, beyond the chili con carne. I seem to remember there was something else Mexican. There was... Um, uh, spaghetti bolognese, there was uh, lamb hot pot, I think. There was quite a combination of things. Um, so the hints and tips that I would uh, give on this one with that kind of food is, firstly, if you just eat that stuff, you have to be very careful. You've got to get the water and you've got to leave it for a very, very long period of time. If you don't, you will be so bunged up because this stuff is going to just it's going to absorb enough water that you think, oh, I can eat this, and you eat it, great, and then it's still absorbing water, and it does that inside your stomach, inside your intestines, and inside your duodenum, and then you're totally bunged up and, you know, very uncomfortable. This is not where you want to be at. So you've got to wait till they're completely hydrated, like even it's 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever, they've got to be completely hydrated. Um, the other thing is that... Um, Menu, uh, menus or rather recipes that come from countries which are like warm countries, which have spicy food, are much more suited to being um, made into freeze-dried food. I say this, the you know, refrigeration is only like 100, 150 years old if you're talking about ice houses and stuff like that. It wasn't that popular in India and Mexico and Thailand and what have you. So they have a lot of spices and a lot of seasoning, which means that the food is, um, able to slightly conceal the taste of meat that might be slightly past its best, right? And those flavors help to cover up whatever it is that happens in uh, freeze-dried food. So what I did to begin with, I had them in like day bags, which were clear and, you know, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or the 21st, the 22nd, the 23rd, it was all very organized. But what started happening, I realized that like lamb hot pot or whatever it was, was not good. It tasted like pencil shavings. So you'd take off Monday's bag and you can see Tuesday's bag and you spend the whole rest of Monday going, oh my God, it's gonna be lamb hot pot tomorrow. Like, so, um, I just then took them all out of the bags, I put them in black plastic bag and you just pull one out of the bag, whatever it is, it is. The calorie intake I had to have, you know, we'd be running every day, you meant to be, as a, as a guy doing some kind of work, you meant to be taking about two, two and a quarter, uh, 2,250 uh, calories. Um, when it's cold weather, that can go up to three, three and a half thousand calories down there with all this work, you're doing about 5,000 calories. And I will say I didn't uh, lose a pound or 
put on a pound going around the world. So I was very happy with that. I think probably I lost a little bit of puppy fat and I put on a bit of muscle, but um, I put on a lot of muscle, but um, definitely I was, my, my diet was okay. Um, but what you have to do is, there's a tendency to make it like food for fuel. And it's just, you just rom, 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 eating it. You don't think about it, you just do it. I think that's a very sad thing to do. I was eating four meals a day and I would take, you know, 20 minutes to sit down. Okay, we're having a meal and wash my hands and, you know, feel like, um, doing something and I'm cooking and just put a little bit of salt and pepper in or anything I've got that makes it something different to mark the moment that I'm having this meal and this is a thing that's happening. Food is very important. And if you start to make it too mundane, you really take something away from it. So um, you have to be very careful with 5,000 calories a day though that you are, um, yeah, the bathroom and going to the bathroom, you've got to be on it. <laughs> and the freeze-dried food doesn't help. So you've got to be uh, eating a lot of like dried fruit and stuff and, uh, and making sure that you um, uh, keep everything flowing, you know. Now, anybody who knows me will know that if I'm talking about eating uh, f uh, freeze-dried food and uh, dried fruit going around the world, then I'm lying. <laughs> the truth of the matter is something's missing. And what's missing is... Haribo. I am an absolute sucker for those tasty little devils, but only if they're made by the Haribo factory. And what I love about Haribo, and I'm not advertised, advertising Haribo, although I'd love to be sponsored by them, and we actually did try and get sponsorship from them. They sent me some marketing uh, stuff instead. But um, they, uh, the guy that set it up was literally, it's from Germany. It's Herr Hadi, I believe his name was. And he uh, made his stuff in Bonn. So I think his name Hadi and Bonn become Haribo. They're very tasty, but they also laden with sugar. So it's pretty much like having an isotonic drink in a little yum num kind of bite thing. So there is a little bit of sense in it <coughs> that it is more than just um, eating candy for the sake of candy. You need that extra sugar to get up to your 5,000 calories. If you, and the other thing I had a lot of was chorizo sausage, very flavorful, and I would put it into the, into the things I was eating. Otherwise, it can just get all so bland. Even if you've got something like Thai green curry in the end, you get sick of it. So 5,000 calories a day, pretty tricky to do, but um, yeah, it was possible. So I hope those answers the questions. I mock a 60 and open 60, the same. And uh, 5,000 calories, only eat spicy food uh, because it tastes better. Uh, make sure it's completely hydrated unless you can have big problems in the toilet. And Haribo is awesome. That's the lessons from that. Okay, so it's getting pretty dark now. If you're watching this on YouTube, <laughs> I think I need to come out a little bit earlier and do this, but I'm glad that we we're able to come out and kind of show some of the environment. We're all stuck inside with COVID-19 self-isolation. I hope wherever you are, you're safe, you're well, and you're listening to this and got a little bit of a kick out of it, got a bit of a laugh out of it, and uh, I look forward to doing the next one. So until then, stay safe, self-sassed, and uh, oh, time to go off watch. Cheers.